Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marian Ellis, and in today's episode, I chat with James Warren, Technical Director of UKDP, a drainage company with a specialism for all things off-mains drainage. We chat about regulation, or the lack of it, and the impact that has for the public, but also how James started and grew his business and what it takes to be visible on social media. So, tell me a bit about off-mains drainage. <laughs> there's, a, there's a question to go straight in with. Yes. But for somebody who has no idea, or perhaps a surveyor or conveyancer, who has okay. no idea, where do you begin? Where do you begin? What well, a brilliant question. And considering it's mostly all I do... I'm I'm almost stumped <laughs> for a response. It's really, it's like the flip side. Anyone that's not connected to a main sewer must have their own off-mains drainage system. They must be self-sufficient, whether they it serves their own property or they're in a, a small group sharing a, an asset, but a septic tank, a treatment plant, a cesspit, anything that serves the property and deals with the, the wastewater on the back end of it, if I can phrase it like that, that isn't connected to the main sewer. So typically we're talking rural or semi-rural properties, but there has been some occasions we've been in a city and for whatever reason, historically, there haven't been a permission, hasn't been granted by the, the water and sewage company to connect a property to their system. So there might be a cesspit in the middle of a city. We've seen a few of them, totally bizarre. You wouldn't expect it, but they are really one-offs. We are, we are looking semi-rural and rural. Which is why I've never really come across them, because when I was out inspecting properties in uh, South London, I've never came across them. Hence, I moved up to uh, the Milton Keynes area when I started, I took on a job to deal with defect and valuation claims. And that's where I, I came across it. Okay. But also on my drive to work, there was a local firm who used to, and I'll get you to explain the difference between a septic tank and a cesspit in a second, but there were these sort of poo tanks on the back of a of a truck and they had some witty you know ha, it's the poo truck or whatever it was I remember thinking wow somebody does that for a living and here you are yes <laughs> talking about these kind of kind of things so it's quite an alien world to me you mentioned just so we get so you know for me and anywhere else you've got septic tanks cesspits cesspits and treatment plants treatment. so there's three different they're the main ones yes and so you've, you've you've summed up why it's so hard to market this sector because it is fundamentally out of sight, out of mind. And I thought you were going to say on your drive to work you could smell something because well, that's normally yeah, what most I people live near say. Farm, so yeah, we, yeah. So you're used to it then. Yeah, but like a mega, mega, super quick overview: a cesspit is simply a massive holding tank. There's no treatment. There's no exit or outlet pipe. So a property or a set of properties will feed into it. It will fill up and then it will need to be emptied. And then it will fill up again and then it needs to be emptied again. So it's literally... It's just a tank. A pile of poo in a... pile of poo. Or, or waste. Water waste. Absolutely, yes. And if it's sized appropriately for the, the property or properties, it will need to be emptied every six to eight weeks. So it it's... It's very expensive. It's inconvenient for the property owners, but it is a legal provision of drainage if none of the other conventional options or, or more typical options work. 
So it's like a fail safe for any site if it's got the footprint to accommodate that size of asset going underground. But they're mega expensive and the environmental regulators don't really like them because if there's a structural breach, you've got sort of raw sewage going straight to ground. So it's a, you know, whether it's near the footings of a property or whether from an environmental perspective, it's just the worst option. But it is still an option if nothing else is possible on a property. And so if you're just on that point, because you mentioned the environmental factors and we're hearing, you know, in the news about how bad the water companies are with, you know, horrible stuff leaking into the water and affecting the climate. Yes. So there's a real climate consideration there if you're building a property and having a, you know, a cesspit put in. If that's the cheapest or easiest thing versus the most environmental way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost, it's not comical. And I say that not flippantly, but the massive water companies are having these daily spills and getting the fines. But there seems to be more focus and more regulation on Mrs. Smith around the corner with her little property and her little septic tank and where that where's that discharging to, which of course is important. But put it in perspective from her discharge to a water company going into a water course, it's just ridiculous. But you're absolutely right. So the four different regu- environmental regulators in the UK have slightly different opinions on what's allowed and what's not. But the, the real sort of top data at the moment is the general binding rules in England. And that's really important. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to jump into that straight away. But from January the 15th, uh, January 2015, there are very specific rules for new installations in England and and where they can discharge to and where they can't and slightly harder to retrospectively implement the rules because the environment agency have got a little bit of a grey area on what's allowed and what's not but that is all to do with protecting our waterways so there are there is hundreds of thousands of septic tanks that are discharging straight into a, a ditch a canal a river a stream and the general binding rules predominantly was created to stop that happening anymore it's slowly working, but I think it's going to take an awfully long time to to fully stop these discharges. So, so sorry, I, I jumped ahead there. So we're talking about cesspits. So what's septic tanks and then treatment plans? Does the general so, binding rules apply to all of that as well then? Yes, it does. So general binding rules, predominantly to stop septic tanks going to water, uh, water courses, but it also encompasses all the other regs as a reminder of what you can and can't do. It's got to comply with Building Regs 2010 Part H. It's got to comply with uh, the BS 6297, which is a 46-page document all about drainage field construction and and the testing to make sure the ground is suitable. And yeah, so cesspit is a holding tank. A septic tank is a smaller tank in proportion to a cesspit, but there is an outlet pipe. So all our, (laughs) I don't know how to phrase this, all our wastewater and all our number twos, the kitchen sink, the bathrooms goes into a septic tank. And in the calmer periods of the day where there isn't any inflow of the water, typically when people are at work or absolutely at night, separation occurs inside the septic tank. The dense matter falls to the bottom. Fat, oil and grease and rags will rise to the top. And that's what forms the, uh, the crust. I don't know if that's a term everyone's used to, the crust layer on top. And the massive section in the middle is the separated wastewater, which is called clarified liquor. Yummy, I hear you say, <laughs> Marin. That, That's that, gross. I know, you'll never have a drink again. That middle section is the only section that should exit the septic tank and then go into a soakaway system. And any new soakaway system has to be a drainage field 
in England, which is perforated pipe or slotted pipe work laid almost flat. So it controls the speed of water going through. It's like one in 200 on a gradient fall. So it's almost flat. The drainage field effectively is the treatment side of a septic tank. So you've got the separation. So all the bad stuff is retained inside the septic tank and that should be emptied annually. But the wastewater that's allowed to exit is then treated via the drainage field and the, the pipe bedding. And if it's laid at the correct depth, so no deeper than a meter, then oxygen can get through the soil. It can hit the wastewater. It can then grow the, uh, the good bugs underground. And then it gets cleaner as it goes to an aquifer and away to a watercourse. So that that's really all you should have on the back end of a septic tank. Septic tank for separation and the drainage field soak away for the treatment. Both separate parts, but they both need each other to be working well. Otherwise, it will just fail. And is that a better or my environmental option than a cesspit? Absolutely. If there is enough space and the ground is suitable for a drainage field, a septic tank and a drainage field, I would say, should be the first choice. There's no electricity supply, so there can never be a power outage. So there can never be a problem for the customer. It really is the cheapest option to get in the ground. Uh, one empty a year. And then that's it. An empty, vastly different prices around the UK. But if it's, say, a three or four bed property and you've got a septic tank, it should cost you no more than 160 to 180 pounds to get that emptied. And that's it. That should be your right. only involvement with the septic tank from a financial or a physical perspective. You just get a vacuum tanker company to come in. They put this three inch hose in, suck it all out. And then the process starts again. So I guess it's having good design, yes, you know, a good design, the right kind of layout. I'm, I'm sort of where my brain works. I think you know, it's like when you have a really good haircut, you just know how to maintain it. <laughs> I, um, I've never heard a septic tank <laughs> and a haircut in the same sentence before, but well, fine, let, let's a, go with that. But, but it's that it's that you know, if something's well designed, it's laid out in the right way, it does what it needs to do, it should just function, and then you're just maintaining it. So is that where the prob- some of the problems come then with septic tanks? Yeah, all the problems not? come with the wrong tank being installed, I maybe too small for the property, so there's not enough room for retention of the sludge. If someone doesn't empty it enough, the sludge gets too high and you reduce the capacity of separation, so it's naughty stuff exiting where it should be retained. If the tank hasn't been installed properly, it could be back to front or out of level, so it's kind of surcharging before it uh, exits. If no one's done a percolation test to establish if the ground is suitable to house a drainage field soak away, or so they what's have a, done what's a, what's a percolation percolation test? test is a two day activity where you carry out small trial pits, you fill it with water, and then you measure the speed in which the water drops a certain distance at the base of those pits. That will give you a value of percolation. You throw that in a calculator against the maximum potential population of the property. And it spits out the results of how big the drainage field needs to be in square meters. And then you translate that into linear meters. And that's how you know the size of the drainage field. So sometimes you can see a percolation test that's being carried out. You look at the results and you realize that they've carried out the test procedure correctly, but they've interpreted the results incorrectly. Or sometimes you just, a customer says their drainage field's failed in a year. And you go, well, what were the percolation test readings? We didn't have a percolation test. What's one of those? And there's just so many reasons why a septic tank system can go wrong, but it's predominantly either bad design, bad installation or bad maintenance. 
So is it a regulated industry? Do people have to have certain training and qualifications to do this stuff? Because it's all right having these general binding rules to tell people often and things. But if you don't get to the the heart of, okay, well, let's get some good practice standards, yeah. the, you know, at the start. This, this, is a, this is a real hot topic. You've got like gas safe. This is the only thing I can refer it to. The NADC, the National Association of Drainage Contractors, have come up with drain safe, the equivalent of gas safe for drainage engineers. But that's all on mains. There is there is no off mains specific stamp per se. There are lots of UK manufacturers of these tanks and treatment plants that go through accreditation schemes for installers to have their badge as a, an approved installer. So that's great. So that's sort of best practice. But there is no equivalent of gas safe for a septic tank installation company. That is what the industry desperately needs. Yes, there is building regulations. There is the BS 6297. There's a general binding rules. This is all available information online. So a competent contractor, if they follow the rules properly and get building control involved, it should be fine. But there are some there are some complexities where you know an off mains installer should be installed uh, should be used for an off mains installation. It just makes sense. But unfortunately, it's down to the marketing of the installation company and the due diligence of the customer to check that that company is competent. There is no official database to say yes that company has done a thousand installs and they're ninety nine out of a hundred on a review base or anything like that. So that is what this industry desperately needs. That resonates for me in terms of things like the problems surveyors have with spray foam installation, with cladding. We're doing all of this retrofit, but we don't know, you know, in 20, 30 years time if it's going to do what we we need to. Yeah. There's no thinking ahead. It seems to be in our culture, maybe that's a bit too much of a, a political statement, but when you see the, the the falling out of it and the problems that these kind of things cause for homeowners, people working in the industry and profession, you just think there's a lot of, you know, we talk about hindsight, but we've got a lot of data and information and case studies and examples of where some of these things just aren't working. Mm. And how do we join the dots sort of back up? And I guess, what does that, does that go back to government? It has to, really. So, for example, in, in Wales, there you have to put your septic tank on a database. It has to be recorded. So that's great. So there is a chance for governance of some description. Um, the only reason there'll be any off-main system in England on a database is when there is a quirky nature about the installation. It needs to go to a bespoke discharge location it might be in an area of sensitivity. There might be near, it might be in a ground protection zone. So you've got to go to the environment agency to get a, a permit to discharge. So during that process, it's recorded. But that's a very small proportion of off-mains drainage systems. The vast majority are installed. If it's a good installation company, there'll be a completion certificate through the local building control. But apart from that, there's nothing. So going back, and I can only talk about my world, when the general binding rules were released in 2015, it was and remains a really good idea for a myriad of different reasons. Where they've really let themselves out, and this is DEFRA and the EA, is that they haven't thought about how to market the message to the asset owners, the property owners, the Mrs. Smith with her little septic tank. 
So it's only now, what are we now? We're eight years on from the release of this regulatory reform that I would say, and I'm plucking this out of my head purely from experience, if one in five septic tank owners know about the general binding rules, I would be amazed. If 20% wow. know, I'd be amazed. There was never any outbound publicity. There's just an expectation from companies like UKDP, from tanker companies, other installation companies, plant manufacturers, as and when they stumble upon a system and that homeowner happens to be in at the same time of the visit, that they can have a conversation about the general binding rules and what that means in the real world. But the other side of it and what we see a lot, we see lots of naughty behavior. So what no, and it's not, this is not a dig at the DEFRA or the EA at all. This is just naughty people in life, I suppose. They'll go to a customer, they'll say, you are illegally discharging, you are breaking the law, you must have this new system installed. They get paid 10, 15,000 pounds. System then doesn't work in a few months. A, a reputable company comes out and says, well, there was never a problem in the first place. It wasn't illegal. It would have been a cheap fix because of X, Y, and Z. And then you've got to redo the whole job again. And this poor person has been completely hoodwinked. And what, what these clever people are doing, I say clever loosely, naughty people are doing, they are cherry picking a section of a line from within the regs to say that's why you're non-compliant. But they don't say non-compliant. They say illegally discharging. Right. And then it's just scaremongering to get a piece of work. So we're trying to go backwards and, and pick through what's happened and try and help the customer try and reclaim funds, of which they never do. So, I mean, that can't be controlled per se unless there is much better marketing and much better uh, visibility for domestic property owners with these tanks to do their own research and find out like a layman's guide of what's allowed and what's not. So they're not railroaded into having a piece of work that's completely unnecessary. And it's really heartbreaking when you come across some of these situations of people who've been scammed because, you know, okay, people might live in rural places and yeah. I don't know, is it a sign of affluence that they've got a, a tank of some kind? But when you see somebody who's just trying to do their best, it's a lot of money and they're just being ripped off. It is just makes you so angry. I can, I can see why you get frustrated yeah, yeah, it's really annoying. And, it, and unfortunately, it is the 100% stereotype. It's always the mm. vulnerable and the elderly that get picked on. And they have the mentality of they want to do the right thing. Yeah. So they're, they're the easy targets. It's, it's an absolute disgrace. So we'll do all it whenever we come across it. We try and do it at cost and stuff like that. But they're still paying twice for something that might not have even needed to be done in the first place. It's it's almost a little bit better if it did need to be done, but it's a bad job. At least you can have some recourse and present them with some evidence to try and start the process for reclaiming it. But a lot of the time, it's just a piece of work that's been done badly that wasn't even needed in the first place. So that's a real, yeah, that's a bitter pill to swallow. You mentioned treatment plants. So what's a treatment plant? Yeah, so a treatment plant is, so in the old days, I'll try and explain this quickly, but it, the, the correct label for a treatment plant is a packaged sewage treatment plant. So effectively, you've got component stages of a old fashioned treatment plant all housed in one asset. So in the olden days, you might have a septic tank, then a clinker bed or a filter bed, then a reed bed. And then after that, I'd be allowed to discharge into a watercourse. The various stages allowed it to reach that quality of treatment for it to be discharged. Now you've got all that to a much higher quality of treated effluent all in one tank. 
So the first stage is basically a primary zone, which is a septic tank. Then it goes through to a treatment zone where oxygen is introduced and biomass is produced, which is a good bug. And that reproduces all the time and it cleans whatever it's in contact with. It just gets cleaner and cleaner. Then it goes to a final zone where any suspended solids or any naughties that have managed to get through the initial two phases are trapped. And all that comes out is sort of 95% clear water, should be odorless, looks like water, but you can't use it for it. You can't use it for water in your flowers, but it gives you the greater options from where it can discharge legally. So you can go to a conventional drainage field, you can go to a free-flowing water course, you can go to a seasonal water course, but you need to put in a, a seasonal soak away first. It can go to a deep soak away, it can go to a borehole soak away. It really gives the owner of the property a lot more options for discharge, but they need a bit more looking after because there are component parts. So as well as an annual empty, same as a septic tank, to make sure that the manufacturer's warranty stays valid, it's got to have an annual service. So your costs for looking after a sewage treatment plant double from that perspective. Then you've got the electricity because it needs that. There's an external blower box that pumps oxygen in 24-7. And sometimes there's also a pump on the back end of the plant if you've got to go against gravity or, or take the treated effluent a long distance. So suddenly you can be looking at sort of £400 a year to run a sewage treatment plant, which still is probably less than sewage rates if you're connected to a main sewer. But it's just more more things to go wrong. But it does produce the best quality effluent. It is the most environmentally friendly option. And I would say over the next two decades, every property is going to have a sewage treatment plant. Uh, off mains property, obviously, not every property. I think although there's been no outbound messages saying septic tanks are going to be outlawed, there's more and more parameters where it's harder to install a septic tank compliantly illegally. So I think septic tanks will be phased out purely because the, the governance is getting a bit stricter. And the mm. only way you're going to be able to tick that box is to have treated effluent. And the only way to achieve treated effluent is from a sewage treatment plant. So I think that's the way the sort of the industry is going. And so from a, I mean, you know, you mentioned from a homeowner's point of view where there there's no sort of go-to to help support them to make the right decisions, to understand the rules and things. What about the whole home buying and selling profession from conveyances, estate agents, surveyors, banks, the the whole lot? I mean, how alive are they to to this? Well, I issue? well UKDP only deal with conveyances and surveyors from that side of things, and and our involvement with it has really come to the fore since the introduction of the general binding rules because there are elements of the regulatory reform that mention property transactions and the need to assess these tanks during the property uh, the transaction process and any non-conformity should be addressed within 12 months after the discovery so really surveyors are getting in my opinion, from my touch points with them, they're getting so much better at recognising what these systems are, how they're supposed to work, red flags for if there's any potential issues. And conveyances really are, from my limited exposure to them, they are getting far more aware of it. But with the surveyors on the ground, they will give some background explanation. It'll be a red three on the survey, which should be a red three if there's any uncertainty and then a specialist company is referenced to come in and do a, a proper survey. The expectation for a conveyance or a surveyor to know exactly what's going on is so harsh. Well, in fact, it's impossible. 
So it needs a specialist company to come in. And I have to say, from, from our perspective, we've got all the right equipment. We can have a tank emptied. We can have one of our engineers looking at a tank. And if there's limited access to get a camera in the outfall pipe work, even though we do this every day, we might not be able to get a complete holistic picture of a system unless we're allowed to start excavating to create our own entry to carry on a camera survey. So how a conveyancer or a building surveyor are supposed to know what's going on, even when we've got the right kit and experience and we can't always guarantee to deliver a holistic picture on our initial survey visit, then it's all to do, I suppose, with awareness, recommending the right people. But it does, of course, come down to, I hate this phrase, but it is buyer beware. Mm. That potential purchaser must act on the guidance they're given. And if they don't, then it might be an extremely costly mistake. My bugbear, and I never wish to turn work away, is when we get an inquiry for our website, for example, saying, please can I have a septic tank survey. And you go, yeah, of course. You know, Where are you? Go through the normal triage questions. And it comes out, they've just taken ownership of a property. They've never been with a property off mains before. They've come from a city. We were told to get it surveyed, but we thought that might hamper the, the purchase. So can we have a look at it now? And you're like, well, of course we come out. And you're just keeping your fingers crossed that it's all okay because they've lost that opportunity to get five, 10, 15 grand off if there was a problem. But that that is extremely common. We see that a few times every week. So it's... Wow. Yeah. So the good thing about that exact scenario is that they've been made aware that they need to have a survey, but it was but their conscious decision it, to do it. Absolutely. It what's worse, what's worse is when they say, can I have a survey because I've just bought a property and they weren't told that it should have been checked before purchase. But that that takes us into a bit of a, a murky mm. area. But it, it sort of leads me to think about upfront information. You know, yeah. and um, you may have come across the home buying and selling group who come together to talk about, you know, how they can make uh, housing transactions happen quicker. And you, you talk about this, you just think all these people coming back and to and works. So, well, that adds time as well as, you know, cost and worry and anxiety. Whereas yeah. given that surveyors don't have um, x-ray specs <laughs> to, to look into certain things, yeah. this sort of screams out for if you have a tank or, a, or a, a pit or a treatment plant, whatever it is, that you've got it serviced, good records or beforehand. And that's where we start to talk about property logbooks, yes. which would then give you a record of where they are in the country and Absolutely. start to get some, some regulation. So it sounds like that is something that could be really useful because then from a surveyor's point of view, you know, they can see that, they can double check what's there. Does it Does it correlate? Does it make sense? That would be lovely. I mean, I think I think I and I'm sure this will never happen, but I think the I think the onus should be on the vendor to present the information to any potential purchaser. And then at that point, you go, well, OK, then I've had the system surveyed. We know exactly what it is. We know where it is. We know where it goes. And we also know that it's compliant or non-compliant and it's going to cost this amount of money to do it. I don't want to pay for it, but it's going to be 10 grand. So I'm reducing the sale price accordingly and just have this complete upfront proactive transparency. And then it's up to the buyer then what they want to do, because the other thing about the pre-purchase surveys that we've come across, if it's not straight after they've purchased, it's just before exchange. So the pressure is then on us not only to get out there quick, is to turn the report around quick and again, fingers, fingers crossed, hope that there's no issues. 
But statistically, and I can only speak for the, the properties that we survey, 70% have issues. So I'm not saying 70, 70% need to be replaced, but there might be a rainwater downpipe going into the septic tank that's referred to as a cross connection that needs to come off. Might only be £1,500, but the fact is that it's something that is a true 11th hour issue that no one's thought of. They might have only just realised they've had to pay us several hundred pounds to come out. That was an inconvenience. It's something they haven't budgeted for. And now we've come back with a little problem right before exchange. And you think, well, there is nothing we can do. We have to report on what we find. There is a slight issue. It's not our fault that we've been engaged so late in the process. So that's why I, that's why I would love in an ideal world for the seller to have to produce mm. this information because then it's up front from day one. And we get, you know, a lot of estate agents listening to to this as well. So it's something for them to think about if they're looking to get these properties shifted, you know, and, and also for surveyors and, you know, independent surveyors can pick up the phone and call you or, or businesses like yours to, because it ultimately that helps the client move things forward. It's what we're all in this for is to help people get to their homes, yeah. you know, and safe, dry and warm. And the first thing you do when you go in is use the loop. And hope that it flashes. Hope that it flashes, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for sure. James Cass, how did you get into this world? It's quite a unique niche type of work, isn't it? Yeah, how did I get into this? Can I call it a career or not? Yes, I I think think it's it's practically a vocation. It is, (laughs) it is. Well, I started off at Norwich Union before it was rebadged Aviva. I was a technical claims handler dealing with underground service insurance claims. So uh, under that underground service banner came water supply, gas, drainage and others. And I just really, God, it's so sad. I don't know why. I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed finding out about how drainage worked, what the repair uh, methodologies were, costings, different suppliers. I just, I, I honestly don't know why. I just found it interesting. I think I am sad. But that's fine. I, I can live I don't with that. think you yeah, I don't I don't think you are because well, you might be, but I, I don't think you are because I've, you know, in the complaints and claims teams that I've run over over the years, a number of them, the people that would work for me, have then gone on to be surveyors and valuers. And I think, you know, when you get to see the other end or start your your journey where where it goes wrong and how things are all sort of you know, put together and planned and you know, the the gubbins, if you like. It then gives you a really unique perspective when you go the other side to go and do the job. And so we don't all start, you know, as surveyors in university thinking about building houses or construction or whatever. And I'm, you know, clearly you didn't go to school and think, yeah, I want to yeah, do this. Let's do work. drainage. <laughs> but when you do that kind of claims work and customer service type work, it's actually very much about people too. And what you've yes. talked about, you know, although there's some technical stuff you've talked about, it is about the people and 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 how it feels to have you know these hassles and these problems go wrong and you know to me you've put yourself in a position where you can help that yeah no you true when i when i first joined nora junior when i was an absolute nipper i remember the three-week training program and it was just drilled into us all the time that whether a claim is covered or not you're dealing with a customer that has paid for a insurance policy that they in default think they're covered so it's not just about making the correct assessment. It's the management of expectation and the delivery of that message in a way that is empathetic 
and transparent and just genuine. And they always said about think of a family member that you protect. I defaulted to my nan at the time, God rest her soul. And it said, how would you want her to be spoken to? How would you want her to be treated when someone visited a property, the aftercare, everything like that? So that's, and it's such an easy thing to do whenever you speak to someone, even if you think they're being unreasonable, and even if you know they're wrong, just throw yourself into that dynamic that someone is speaking to your nan and you just calm down and you slow the pace down. You match their pitch and pace and volume and, and suddenly everything seems a little calmer. And that's the nicest way of doing everything. And that is a brilliant way to approach any complaints and claims. What I see, however, is surveyors who handle their own complaints can't get past that because someone's complaining specifically about you and what you did or didn't do. Yeah. And and I think we we forget that, you know, we're selling surveys or our services as the gold standard. And whether sure. we like it or not, you know, we've promised an insurance guarantee. And when things fall down, it's not just the distress of, you know, the the problems and the things that happen and the and the money. People feel foolish that they invested their time, money and energy and faith in a company or a brand or a person that everything was going to be okay and they feel fooled. And that's where a lot of the, the anger and frustration comes from. I bet. So I think yeah. it's really important, you know, to have a bit of separation or have someone help you with, you know, problems. So you get a bit of that that distance because, yeah. you know, as when you're doing the job, you didn't set out to do it wrong. Sometimes these things just happen and you can't Absolutely. really respond in a really nice way and I, and I see it in the hub I see it you know surveyors moaning about about clients you know how yeah. dare they ask questions like, well oh. I, th- I think that that stems <laughs> and that's a beautiful segue I think that stems beautifully into never responding quickly it's always it's not it's not having a half hour cup of tea and a biscuit it's it's at least having one night's sleep on it because the difference in perspective after a night's sleep I've had it I'm so guilty of this when the business we started the business all those years ago, as you said, you get viciously defensive because, you know, it's your baby and an attack on the company is an attack on you. Or maybe it wasn't an attack on me. It was just me to start with. But you realize as you get older, I've just had my 46th birthday. Thanks for the card that I didn't get, but we'll come on to that another time. <laughs> you realize that someone is angry for a reason and they do have you dig deep enough they as you say there will be a reason why they're angry so break that down don't take it personally and always respond the next day i speak i speak to my guys that are viciously passionate about ukdp cut them in half they've got ukdp re, uh, running through them like a stick of rock i love that but with that passion comes a little bit of tunnel vision sometimes a bit of a blinkered approach that we can't be wrong approach so we'll sleep on it we'll talk on it on the day we'll talk about it the next day and then we'll do a measured response we'll throw in that empathy we'll throw in an apology if it's warranted and you just take the emotion out of it if you if you respond in the next day and what we did in the in the old days we'd respond straight away that real sort of shoot from the hip response mentality and you thought yeah i feel good about that the next day i i learned straight away that if you reread an email and you don't feel good about it the next day you know it was a mistake so what we do now if we're so passionate we want to respond we'll draft an email and we'll park it we'll readdress it the next day and if we still feel as strong 
we'll keep the message the same, but we'll obviously tweak it. More times than not, the whole draft will be deleted and we'll start afresh. And I think as you get older, you get less tolerant, but you get so much better at managing your response. It kind of, and, and that's a nice place to be. You take less grief, but you still you probably respond better. It's just, it's just the only way to be in business. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think for a lot of the surveyors that I that I come across, we have this. It's all about the turnaround. It'll be done quickly, and so whether you're sending that email straight away because you're defensive, or because oh, I've got to respond quickly for turnaround and and all of this. When in the complaints that I dealt with, it was very much about like, well, let's triage. What do we know? What don't we know? Have we got enough information to make a decision on whether we've got it right or wrong? Sure. Really sort of analyze it, break it down, take your time because your, your client will want you to do it right rather than however angry they are, that we all want the same outcome of just of being course. able to, to do things right. Yeah. Tell me tell me a bit about your, your business then. So you you started on your own and how, how big is it now? So I just did a post about this because I realised how ridiculous it sounds to anyone that cares to listen. When I was 29 years old, I told myself I must have my own business by 30. Why I decided that when I was 29, giving myself so little time, I'll never know. So I left a really well-paid job with a really good future ahead of me to start up UKDP. I had very little money in my pocket. But I thought, it doesn't matter, James. I don't know why I'm referring to myself in a third person. It's, you've got enough knowledge, you've got enough about you. Let's just go for it. So I did. And I think when when we spoke the other day, if you break a business into sort of 10 component parts and refer to it as a cake, I thought I knew nine out of 10 slices. Within a couple of weeks, I knew I, I knew one and a half slices maximum. So that, it wasn't arrogance. It was pure naivety. Until the buck stops with you from every facet of a company through advertising, marketing, finances, biz dev, social media, you've got no idea what it takes. You've got no idea how much time and attention every individual sector needs in the business. So, yeah, so my first my first year or so was was quite tricky because I realized that buying branded pens and having fancy merchandise was completely irrelevant when the business hadn't even built a reputation no one really knew who we were but it soon grew and it started purely doing claims management for drainage contractors so ukdp has always been regulated by the financial conduct authority a lot of the guys that now work for ukdp come from insurance companies or loss adjusters so one small part of the business is still claims management, but that's what the company was born to do. And it's just evolved now into a little bit of claims management. So we, we're, we're appointed by insurance companies, loss adjusters and homeowners alike. And it doesn't matter who appoints us because it's a independent assessment, irrespective of who the instructing client is. It doesn't matter to us who pays us, who instructs us. It's the same outcome. We deal with facts. The biggest growing part of the company and why I'm very glad we're here today is the building surveying world. In the last few years specifically, we've realized how important it is. It's it's the pre-purchase surveys. It's the compliance checks. It's the appreciation of governance and legality surrounding this world. And every time we were having conversations internally, the stakeholder always involved. It was always a surveyor at some point. 
So that's when I started talking to surveyors and, and Ian at Carpenters was one of the first that gave me personally the time of day to talk me through how a surveying process works, how we might be able to benefit that, what we need. To, you know, so I absolutely love it. I know you know Ian as well. Top bloke. And I hope he listens to this. He's been a brilliant to UKDP and me personally. But now it's the biggest part of UKDP. We, If I can be selfish and candid, pre-purchase service is great. They're paid up front, so it's fantastic for cash flow. We specialize in, in septic tanks, so it's easy for us to show off because we've got the, the right staff and the right equipment and the right attitude to get out quickly, turn them around quickly, not make mistakes, and in my opinion, be the best at what we do in that field. And also, if we have truly impressed the customer during that process of doing the survey, and I don't mean doing the survey on site, I mean the first introduction, handling the job, booking it in, the survey itself, the follow-up report, quality of the report, and then the chat and conversation afterwards. If there is a piece of work on the back of it, if we've done a good job, why would that customer go anywhere else other than us to fulfill that work? So 100% selfish from the back end of a report, if any work is needed, we've got the first opportunity to capture it. For that reason alone, the surveying world is mega important. On the other side, forget commerciality, forget selfishness. It's a great opportunity to make sure that the customer and the property gets the right advice. If we're involved, I, I've had the privilege of working with some fantastic contractors over the years that have helped educate me. So now we know what we're saying is correct. We, we are technically very, very good. This isn't supposed to be a sales pitch, and it's not. But what I'm trying to say is when UKDP are involved, whether we're paid to be involved, or like I do through LinkedIn, surveyors just come to me saying, "What's you know, send me a photo, what's this, and what can I say to my customer? It's just making sure the customer gets the correct advice every single time. I think about a third of all we do is advice only, no payment. Totally cool with that. It's spreading the right message of compliance, legality, awareness to any stakeholder that might be able to get that message back to that property owner and their property per se. So the business now is, yeah, building surveyors are huge. I, I see, I, I could see UKDP going almost exclusively into the surveying world. You know, we're formal part training partner with Sava now. We're doing quite a lot with eServe. We've done a myriad of CPD sessions for conveyances, estate agents, but mostly building surveyors. Obviously, we're doing some bits and pieces. Yeah, we've got, we'll, we'll put a link to that. We've got one where... Yeah, um, got the webinar doing. coming up. I hope there's 100 people signed up. Well, do you know not, what? It's, it's been a sellout. Has <laughs> it? I think there's a one or two spaces left, but it is on is on replay. <laughs> it's good, this is what it's all about. It's just awareness. That That's the most important thing. It is. Thing. And what you're, what you're, the way you're talking, it sounds like you've got a purpose. There's a purpose to your business, which has, has driven it. If you go back to when you first started and you said, you know, I, I don't know why I started. If you hadn't, what do you what do you think that would have done or how would you have felt? I would have I would have earned more initially, that's for sure. I think I would have just got gradually more miserable because I one of the factors for starting my own business was that I didn't really like having a boss which is completely the wrong reason to start a business. It wasn't the only reason, but I think I just got to that point, you know, super late 20s, 29, I just thought, have I learned? And is there enough about me? Do I, Have I got the, the guts? Have I got the knowledge to, to do this? 
And I don't know. I don't know if there's like a, a light bulb moment. I've got no idea whatsoever. I think it was just the fact that bloody hell, the next birthday is 30. Perhaps have I, have I done enough? Have I achieved enough? Have I fulfilled my purpose? I, I was really, really poor at school. Not, not financially, as in I didn't apply myself out of school. In school, I was fine. Grades were great. Out of school, rubbish. My GCSEs were awful. But I think I've got a good brain. My sister is straight A in the legal profession. She took all the brains, all the looks. I hate her, but I love her. But we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> so I went down the, I did construction engineering at college because you didn't need very good grades to get in there. I enjoyed it. But at that point at college, I wanted to earn money. So I just went into employment. And every time I, I always said yes to overtime, yes to coming in weekends. So I realized that I enjoyed earning money. So that's probably one of the decision makers as well. But yeah, but as as for what I do, if I hadn't done the business, I don't know. I think I'll be pretty miserable as an employee somewhere going through the motion, earning a few quid. I, I think it really demonstrates that particularly for younger people in their like uh, 20s, you know, early 30s, the importance of a good environment that helps you succeed. Because if where you had been working had given you a leadership program, had given you a future that you could see where you wanted to be, that that might have helped you on that on that route. But also, I mean, I hate the term role models, but role models of well, what does a business look like? And how can you do this? And you know, and I see that with a lot of younger surveyors who work for corporates who'd like to work for themselves, but they don't hang around with enough or businesses or, or whatever. And you've really got to get to know and understand and broaden your horizons, if you like, to work for different firms of different sizes and do different things to get a sense of what's important to you. Because I'm sure on the days that, you know, you find it difficult in those first couple of years, it's that sense of purpose of why you do it and hanging on to the satisfaction you get from those clients and the thank yous that drive you through to do the difficult things that you've never done before as a, yeah. as a business owner. You're, you're so right. And there's been many, there's been many times where you think you've done something right and you've put your heart and soul and some money into an idea and you think, you know, I know nothing's guaranteed, but this is going to work and it dies on its ass. So you've lost the money, you've lost the time, and it hits you hard. You think, God, I'm, I'm supposed to be good at this sector and we've got something horribly wrong. But as long as the successes outweigh the failures and there's a couple of couple of quid in the account, then everything's fine. But I think if you don't, and this is not, you know, not too airy-fairy, but I think you've got to, you know, one chance at life, you've got to take a few risks, not silly risks. You know, there's sort of remotely controllable risks. And, and some people don't ever want to take those risks. And that's cool. And being one of those people, I'm sure would be lovely, but it's not me. And I know it's not you. So, but then if everyone was risk takers, there'd be no staff members. So the world wouldn't really take, would it? So, you know, we need different people with different attitudes to risk all the time. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes you get to a point in your career where you're not encouraged to go further because you suit that they suit you. you you're suited to where they want you to be. But if yeah. you know you've got more to give, then that's a conversation to have or to start thinking about working for yourself and, and those things. Can Definitely. I ask you about being visible on social media? Because that's obviously being in front of your business is something that you've had to embrace. Yes. Um, you know, I follow you on, on social media on, it's mainly LinkedIn that you you do, I think. Yes, isn't it? it is. Yes. And you had a, made me laugh the other day because uh, you'd lost a couple of followers. Yes, I did. Because uh, I put a post about a cat up 
Yeah. And it was really funny because I then looked at mine. Now you've got loads of followers compared to me, but when I, I looked from the time I remembered, I'd lost about 150 followers. And I thought, really? oh my God. And it wasn't the, it's gone back up now. It wasn't the, you know, it's about the numbers and popularity. It was the have I offended 150 people and doing what? Now, I think it was a problem because it came back up quite quickly. And, it, you know, it must and, have been a problem. You know, yeah, and it's definitely. not, yeah. <laughs> but it does It does make you, you know, think about what you put out. And, and how, so how did you approach, you know, increasing that visibility? Did it just increase over time? Did you realise you just had to do it? How, how honest can I be? Oh, go, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> so I allocated... In the early days of LinkedIn, I allocated 15, 20 minutes a day. Anyone that is even distantly, potentially relatable to UKDP, I'll just send in. I think the maximum is 100 invites a day. Yeah. So I'd send 100 a day. It was a pure volume game. And if people were offended, they wouldn't they wouldn't accept my invitation. And if they if they were cool with it, that's brilliant. And in the early days where I didn't have many connections, I'd do a personal note saying, thank you so much for connecting. It means the world. They thought that was weird because I didn't realize there's a kind of etiquette with LinkedIn and no one actually does that. So everyone probably thought I was a bit OTT to start with. But now it's a, it's a case of, okay, then it's quite a few people. I don't actually know what it is at the moment, 12 or 13,000. It's not enough, nowhere near enough. But I still I still have the same mentality of trying to get messages out that might resonate at some point with a person or a profession that may need our services. I know that sounds horribly loose, but trying to go B to C is impossible because in our world, you either need to be marketing direct to the public when they're selling the property or when they've got a problem. To try and get that message hitting them at that precise moment in time is almost impossible. So that's why we said, right, it's got to be predominantly B to B, Let's go surveyors, other contractors, plant manufacturers, anyone so was, in our it was sphere. Strate- it was strategic of let's 100%. get a plan, get on LinkedIn, connect with as many people as possible. Yep. And I think I think that's the right way to to start and to to throw yourself throw yourself into it. I think people can be a bit too precious about who they're connected to or not. And that'll get you to a point, but then it comes to the content and what you're sharing. And if it's not useful and engaging, I mean, I know people who've got, you know, 30, 40,000 followers and they've put stuff out and nobody likes it, nobody comments. You know, we, we all have that, but there's just that total lack of engagement. Yeah. You know, and and if if someone's going to dare to read my posts or, or yours, I value their time. You know, even if it's just a couple of seconds, it's got to be worth it. Definitely. Uh, worth it for me to be out there and worth it for you to share whatever it is you're doing about your cats. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's got to be a, it's a value exchange and you've got to uh, approach it that way. And I think it's a trip that a lot of surveyors miss because we worry about going straight to customers. But it is all about referrals and our network you know, and people within our within our industry. Well, yeah, I mean, this is two prongs. So I, I've got no idea. I get so so little feedback on my post that until until I'm shut down or someone tells me I'm an absolute fool, I'm just going to keep going. I find it incredibly difficult to come up with content. I try and do two or three posts a week. I don't always achieve that because sometimes it's just too mega busy. But it's great if my if the engineers have some photographs from an interesting job, that's fantastic. It means I don't really need to think about it. I just top and tail their notes to me and off we go. That's lovely. I don't really know who sees it. 
maybe it'll be useful and I'll never know, but it doesn't matter. That's just the technical awareness piece. And I want that to be consistent all the time. You know, selfishly, again, I want anyone in our world to think of UKDP front of mind, the way that people think about, I don't know, in the old days, Dynarod for, for normal drainage. You know, they're massive market presence, still a massive market presence, but a little bit uh, smaller now. I want UKDP to be that for the off-mains world. And anyone that thinks about off-mains, I want them to think of us first. We're not there yet, probably a way off, but that's what I want to happen. But regarding anyone looking at the posts, I don't know if they like it. To be honest, I do care and I don't care because as long as I know that I can justify anything that I write, that's good enough yeah. for me. I don't know if it's funny. I don't know if I'm funny. I don't care if I'm funny. If I make myself laugh doing a post, that's good enough. Well, yeah, and that's where, where I got to to do these silly videos that I sometimes do. It was just a... Uh... When you say sometimes, you mean every week? Well, what I do is I I started doing them just to get a bit of, let off some steam and do some funny stuff because the, in the position that, that I am, what I see, I, you know, I see some horrible stuff sometimes and it gets me very angry. Sometimes I talk out, talk about it. Sometimes I don't. And I just felt like I had a bit of fun. So I went on TikTok, which was great because nobody's on there or not many. Apart from Pete, the other surveyor, and Sinead, who's on there. <laughs> we'll get a name check, guys. But what I did then is I repurposed it onto a, a business page, thinking, oh, nobody will look at that either. And it's just sort of grown. And it, it's interesting how people remember me from a post I did a little while ago. It's that one thing that stuck in their their mind or it yeah. gets shared. or And you do think, you know, and I had somebody say to me, oh, I met... I re- you really inspired me, Marion, or you you helped me do this when when I looked at your post from five years ago, and I think shit, what did <laughs> what the hell came out then? <laughs> you know, so you've always got to be mindful of who's looking, what's the purpose, is it you know who are you talking to? I think is yeah. the the key. In terms of, I've got loads of tips I can give you in terms of some of the technical pictures because I don't have those, you know. Hence, I prance about my house doing stuff. But there's, it's thinking about it being a value exchange. What is it this going to help somebody do? But it's also remembering that with the audience that you've got, you know, say audience rather than followers, you know, only two to three percent are ever looking you at you at any one time. So you think you're putting this post out and millions of people are going to look and they're not. They're not, exactly. <laughs> at all. And you you sweat over it. And, and, and like, you know, you, I know, go through phases of, I feel like doing it. Sometimes I don't. So scheduling can be, can be really helpful. I tend to do the, you know, the, the videos on a, uh, on a Friday because they're a bit more lighthearted. And sometimes I feel like talking about stuff and sometimes I don't. And I think once you get into a rhythm and routine and you're clearer on what you talk about and why, just don't worry about it, you know, and just enjoy the social media for, for what it is and, and the tool that it is. And don't worry if you lose followers or or not, or if you say the wrong thing, you know, it's just a forum and it's, it's part of a picture, you know, of the networks that you engage with. You'll have a following off the podcast now because of this, not just because of social media, you know, and people are networking in, in lots of different, lots of different ways. Well, no, I, th- I think I, I, I agree, but to a certain degree, I, disagree in that with linkedin for ukdp i almost see our website as our shop front for domestic customers b2c and linkedin is our equivalent shop window to the the commercial world so i'm extremely conscious that always you know that the techie ones are fine they tick a box hopefully they're interesting they'll always be factually correct and you know if someone sees it and it gives them a tiny bit of additional knowledge that's great but 
I don't know who's going to be looking at that. I don't know if we're in a tender situation and the procurement team or tender team are looking looking on social media to see, okay, do we want these kind of people? Let's see what they're like. And then make a judgment from posts. So although it's impossible to please everyone all the time, I'm extremely conscious that I've got no idea who's ever going to see these, if anyone does indeed look at them. And I've got to at least have a little bit of pride in that I'm not making an ass of myself or the company. And it and it's it's social proof and credibility that everything that you say in your tender or on your website or what happens with clients, that that is who you who you are and what your business is a, is about. It's a way to demonstrate your values and and what's important to you. And yeah, and that is important. Just, yeah, yeah, that is important. I I care deeply about the industry has been really good to UKDP and me, and I've said this a few times. It sounds a bit pompous. Anything I can give back, I will, which is why a lot of what we do is advice. That's great. Not earning from it, but I suppose reputationally we are earning because it's just kudos points because we are hopefully becoming that go-to player. And it's that word of mouth referral and passing things on. Just just on a final point on, on visibility, though, it was quite funny that I bumped into you at an event the other month and I had no idea who you were. <laughs> I didn't realise you were going to bring this up, Marion, yes. I was mortified afterwards. I don't think you you were mortified because you were like a social butterfly. Everyone wanted a piece of you. I was like, oh, yeah. I I went high, you went high and you left. I thought, wow, what an impact I've made. I was just, yeah, I just, absolutely no idea. But James, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Thank you ever so much. We'll put links. Is that the hour done? That's the hour, yeah, you've been talking for an hour. I'm so sorry. I didn't get worded. (laughs) Let's do another one. I've only just started. Oh, James, it was lovely. Thank you ever so much. No, thank you. So thanks for listening. There are lots of resources in the show notes, so do take a look and get in touch if you have any questions. If you find this podcast helpful, please do share it with someone who might benefit. And you can buy me a coffee as a thanks or leave us a podcast or Google review. I'll see you next time.